0: God, I'm looking forward to this time together this morning. It's been uh, an amazing journey, swimming in the ocean of John 17. Um, Thankful for the heart of Christ that you've shown us, and um, amazed at the riches of the gospel and the riches of what you've done in sending Christ, what he's done in going, coming, what he's done in... His perfection, sinlessness, sacrifice, what you've done to open the heart and eyes of man to see his work, Lord, it just causes us to marvel. Thankful for the holy ground that we've had the chance to stand on, kneel on, or lie prostrate on in the last few months in john 17 look forward to this morning as we get to enjoy in some ways the climax just pray that you will arrest us with the scandal of it lord i pray for connection to just the dailiness of life pray that what we engage in these next few moments will invade everything that we are And this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 17, our last Sunday in this chapter. It's a prayer that's prayed by Christ on the eve of his cross. Thankfully, it's prayed out loud, and John was listening. John recorded what he heard, and we've had the chance these last couple of months to uh, listen in on really God the heart of God as God the Son speaks with God the Father. John chapter 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. This morning, we're going to, in one sermon, engage the final petition. Of the prayer, There are five requests or petitions of the prayer. Um, over the last few months, we've had the chance to really sort of disassemble each of these requests. And in some ways, this final one is the climax of the prayer. They all have weight. If you think about some of the things that are requested, like the first one where he's pleading for his own glory... That has tremendous weight, as I hope you would imagine. He's jealous for his own glory, and he's begging for it. Begging his father, pleading with him. The second one, he's pleading with the father for protection for his people. Keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one, that they may be one. The third one is also a plea. Sanctify them in the truth. And then the fourth one was a request for oneness, a prayer that we would be one even as the father is one. This fifth one, though, is sort of a climax because this fifth one uses a word that we haven't seen up to now. It's a word that's sort of cloaked in our translation, at least the one that I just read, is the word desire. You may have a different translation. I failed to look at other translations. It's less important than what that word means. In the original language, that word means will. Father, my will is that those you have given me may be with me where I am forever. It's the first time that God the Son has spoken with God the Father and said, God the Father, this is my will. So we can know that this is also the Father's will because they're not going to have contrary wills. But what we should know or just should consider before we even consider what he's asked for, we've got to recognize that this word that's used the first time in this prayer on the eve of his cross, this word will tells us that we're about to engage something seriously important. Shocking when you really look at it. And appreciate that he has a will that he's sharing out loud that we get the chance to listen in on first thing we're going to do is we're going to engage this verse 24 in three parts we're going to consider first his will what it is and secondly we're going to consider the content of that will and then the purpose of that will that's going to be the three parts the first part is his will for a specific people the second part is his will for a specific people to be with him. And the third part is his will for a specific people to be with him to see his glory. So let's deal first with the son's will for a specific people. Turn to John 6, 44. Before we consider what his will is and what it means that he says, this is my will, I want us to first consider who he's expressing his will about, the specific people part. When I started preaching in John years ago, um, I had a difficult time considering that Christ would die for a specific people. But I made a commitment to believe the Scripture as I was preaching it. And John 644 is where I first came into contact with a passage that shown or revealed some specificity of the cross. Let me show you a series of passages starting with John 6:44, so we can see who specifically he's praying for over here in John chapter 17. John 6:44, he says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." The word in the original language there is "drags." and I will raise him up on the last day. The people that he's praying for over here in John chapter 17 are the drawn ones, the dragged ones. Look later in the chapter in John 6, 64 and 65. I'll back up just to give you a little little bit of context. Jesus had just told them, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in them. Now, they knew he wasn't talking about cannibalism. But what they struggled with was the idea of something being so centered on who he was. This little passage here unfolds. It says, many of his disciples heard what he said and said, 'Mm, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It sounds sort of excessive. And Jesus goes on to address those. And in verse 64, he says, there are some of you who do not believe. Pay attention to what he says next. It's parathetical in my passage or in my translation. It says, for Jesus knew from the beginning. Now, is that going to be the beginning of the day? The beginning of his ministry? The beginning of his life in Bethlehem? Is that when he knew? Or is it from the beginning, the beginning? Like in the beginning? We'll find out later, but we can wonder at least at this point. It says Jesus knew from the beginning those who were those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. It wasn't just he didn't just have awareness about Judas. He knew who would not believe in him. And it goes on verse sixty five to say, and he said, "This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father." The people he's praying for over here in John chapter 17 are a specific people, a drawn and dragged people, a granted people, a people known from the beginning. If he knows who's not going to believe in him from the beginning, you can better bet he knows who is going to believe in him too. A drawn people, a dragged people, a known people, a granted people. Turn over to chapter 10. <clears throat> the book of John is just saturated with this prominent teaching of this specificity of the cross. I'm going to come back to this later, but let me just kind of escort you into why I'm en- why we're engaging this. You need to know that when Christ went, went to the cross, that he wouldn't just submitting to wood and nails and an unjust, unjust trials, multiple unjust trials, just saying, I hope this sticks. I hope somebody believes in me. I hope this works, Father. He didn't go to the cross that way. He went there with specific people, with hair and teeth and feet and stories and problems and names to the cross. That's who he's praying for here on the eve of it. There's specificity in what he's asking for in his will, so we're going to consider the specificity of it. John chapter 10, verse 3. I'll start in verse 1 just for the sake of context. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He begins to start talking about identifying himself as the good shepherd and about his followers as sheep. Listen to what he says. It says, To him the gatekeeper opens. That's the good shepherd. The sheep hear the good shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. He knows them. He knew them from the beginning, the dragged ones, the drawn ones, the known ones. He calls them by name and he leads them out. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. These people that he's praying about over here in John chapter 17, the ones that he's sharing his will regarding are the drawn ones, the granted ones, the known ones, the woolly ones, the listening ones. Look in verse 14 of this same chapter. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. Just as much as the father knows the son and the son knows the father, Jesus knows who's going to believe in him. He's known them before they ever took breath. He's known you before you were ever thunk of. He's known you before time began in the beginning And just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay my life down, notice, for the sheep. This work of the cross wasn't just a, I hope this sticks. This was, I'm laying my life down for the sheep. The specificity of this will matters, because it's saturated in this prayer. Turn back to the prayer in John chapter 17. Look in verse 2. He's just shared his first request, his first plea. Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh, notice, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's a specific people with specific names and teeth and hair and stories, and quirks. Real people. That's who he's praying for here in this prayer. Specific people, foreknown. In verse 6, he says, I've manifested your name to those people, the woolly ones, the drawn, the dragged, the foreknown, the predestined. Those people whom you've given me out of the world, I've manifested your name to them. Goes on in verse 9. To see more of the same. I'm praying for them, not these these specific people that you have given me, foreknown, the drawn ones, the dragged ones. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. It's a very specific prayer for a specific work that's about to take place on the next morn. The work of the cross. And then in verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom you have given me. He's praying for the people he will go to the cross for. He's praying for the drawn ones, the dragged ones, the granted ones, the known ones, the woolly ones, the listening ones, the spared ones that he's laying his life down for. He's praying for people with names and hair and stories and quirks and problems and dreams. Real, specific people are in view when he prays this prayer and when he's nailed to that cross the very next day. And if you're in fellowship with him through his finished work, he's praying for you. This will that he's sharing has to do with you. He didn't go to the cross thinking... I hope this works. Now, before we consider his choice of words being will, I want us to really connect to who this will is for. It's for specific people, foreknown, predestined, people drawn, granted, listening, and spared. These people whose names are pre-recorded in the book of life. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. I want you to see see a series of passages. One passage in Philippians 4 and then three passages in Revelation. This is not an exhaustive picture I'm about to show you. It's just a sampling of what I'm talking about with this pre-recorded book of life. I went in my office library and I went in my office and grabbed what I could find to be the, the oldest, biggest book, and this was it, the International Standard of Bible Encyclopedia. It's a great series. It's just big, and it's ominous looking. That's why I grabbed it, not because there's anything specific about it, and because it's black. I don't know why I felt like it should be black, but I expected the book of life would be a lot bigger than this, a lot more, um, lot more pages, hopefully. But I pulled this out just for sake of imagery as we read these passages. Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Labor with those that are recorded in the book of life, those that the Savior prayed for on the eve of His cross, those that the Savior died for, those that were foreknown, pre-recorded. Labor with those. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> Revelations, the, the chapters 3 and, th- well, 2 and 3 really, have seven letters that are written to Churches. And it's sort of a sampling. I love that it's seven, because seven in the book of Revelation is a picture of kind of completeness. So it's sort of like a sampling of the gamut of the types of churches out there. And this is New Testament context when these were written. Um, So these would be New Testament churches, real churches with real people. He writes a letter to the church at Sardis in chapter 3. And in verse 5, he says this, this. Sardis, you could call sleeping Sardis, because they're kind of snoozing. Some of the churches he's praising, most of the churches he's sort of have some indictments against. Sleeping Sardis was one of those that was an indictment. Here's a threat. Now, just listen to the content of it. I don't want you to take it too far and wonder if your name could be erased from the book of life. But listen to what's said. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This picture of the book of life is a prominent teaching in our Bible. Turn over to chapter 13. Now, here, here are a couple of glimpses of this book having been prerecorded. There is a notion, I think, probably for most Christians, that the thought that your name would be recorded in the book of life on that day that you make a decision for Christ, that you walk an aisle. And that's, that's a very natural thought. And that's probably where most of us would land. But what I want you to see is this book has been pre recorded. Foreknow that he went to the cross not with some maybes in view, but some definites in view. Listen to this passage in regards to the, those who will worship the first beast. There are two beasts mentioned in this chapter. This is the first beast. Verse 8, And all who dwell on earth will worship it. That's the first beast. And everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. See that? Everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. The book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Listen, I, y'all need to know there's no agenda behind this sort of preaching other than exposing truth. so hesitant to even engage this. In our context here in Greenville, there are, at least last count, 97, 98 Christian churches. I don't know all the, all the teachings or beliefs of every the book is right in front of y'all isn't it, over here. I don't know all the teachings of all those churches, but I do hear sort of a prominent message in Greenville, and I don't think it's a whole lot different from a lot of the other teachings in the Bible Belt. And it's sort of a theology that sort of puts you and your decision at the center of all things. And I want you to know that that's a new teaching. Greenville may be one of the newer, or Crosspoint may be one of the newer churches in Greenville. But that doesn't mean that we have the newest message. That we have some sort of newfangled twist on the gospel. In fact, this is an ancient teaching. Teaching. It's only been in the last hundred years or so that people have started to put man at the center of the gospel and our decision at the center of the gospel. And a guy named Charles Finney and guys like that, early evangelists in the early, you know, early part of this century, had decision seats and hot seats where people were pressed to make a decision for Christ. And our gospel sort of changed. And it became less about God being a sovereign God being at the center of the work of the gospel and more about us and our decision. And a lot of what invaded that, too, is the Western mind that defines and understands love as boy shows off for girl, girl falls in love with boy, and that they define that as love. Like there's something redeeming about boy, and so she, she falls in love because he's awesome. What we don't realize is the full counsel of the, of the gospel that realize that we have no capacity to love God, except that he does something in our hearts beforehand. There's a fallenness, this na- the character of man. This, the, the full counsel of the Bible has been ignored and neglected. That would be ma- maybe a better, better way to put it. Because it's not been ignored, it's just sort of been vegetalized. When you vegetal these Old Testament stories and you disconnect to the character and nature of, of God as a choosing sort of God that chose Israel among all nations... An unlikely dead-gum bunch of people who proved their unlikeliness and unworthiness. If you vegetal those and you just look for Daniel was brave and David was another brave one. (laughs) You know, we just vegetalize the whole Old Testament. Then we read the New Testament without getting the joke. We hear the punchline, but we don't get the joke. But we know it's supposed to be funny, so we laugh. I urge y'all that if you're in that place where you're having a difficult time thinking about the cross being specific, think about the specificity of God calling Noah and his family and saying, build a big old boat. Get on that ark because I'm going to save the world through a remnant. Or the specificity of calling Abraham a moon worshiper. And say, I'm going to reveal who I am to you. To you. Go to a land that you've never been to, and I'm going to reveal myself to you as you go. And I'm going to build a whole new people through you. An unlikely bunch. Where I will prove to the world forevermore that I choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And I extend grace and mercy to the unlikelies, foreknown and foreordained and predestined. That's how Jesus is praying here in John chapter 17. He's praying for an unlikely bunch. But they're foreknown, foreknown and predestined for the book of life. Pre-recorded. This isn't a, 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 the only teaching regarding the, um, when this book was recorded. Another passage. You can just listen to this one a few chapters later in chapter 17. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. And go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names, listen, have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Remember, Jesus said, or it says, in the beginning, he knew who wasn't going to believe in him. That wasn't the beginning of the day. Like when he got up, I know who's not going to believe in me today. That's from the in the beginning, the beginning. In the beginning, when let there be light in the beginning. This book has been pre-recorded from the foundation of the world. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This isn't some sort of new weird teaching. This is the ancient truth. It's the new guy on the block that's teaching otherwise. Man, this is ancient truth that the people of God have died for and bled for and gone to foreign climes and lost their heads over. This is the sort of teaching that makes martyrs, that scandalizes and ravages a bunch of people where they're going, dude, I'm unlikely, I'm unworthy to be in that book. I know myself and nobody should be written in that book. Nobody. That's a different take on the gospel, my friend, and it'll create a different sort of worshiper altogether. I don't know if the other kind even is a worshiper. Hopefully they're on their way to being a worshiper. He has a specific people in view. He already had a plan when he's in Genesis. He said, let there be light. It wasn't like, oops, I guess I better send my son and fix this fallenness. He had a plan from the very beginning. And it's a plan for his own glory and grace and mercy being on display through the finished work of his son to an unlikely bunch, foreknown, predestined, pre-recorded in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That's how he's praying on the eve of his cross. Now, back to his will. Why that thorough development? Here's why I wanted to make that thorough development because some of you have been in on the reading of a will. Brent Money helped us draft ours. A few years ago, Christy and I started, we were going on a trip somewhere and we were leaving our kids here and we're like, man, what would, happen to our kids if we didn't have a will. So, we got with Bram said, hey, we need a will. That's what a will is. You're expressing your final wishes and your final desires. It's a prudent thing to do when you're about to die, or you could potentially die. This is Jesus's final will and testament. Think about what he's saying here. These are his final desires and his final wishes before he goes to the cross. These are the last recorded words that we have, God word, father word, before he goes to the cross. We know about his Gethsemane prayer. Father, take this cup from me. And we know what he said on the cross. Um, Father, I surrender my spirit or I give up my spirit. I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now. I ought to know those words. Into my hands I commit my, I commit your spirit, my spirit. Into your hands. <laughs> Back to his will, I want you to understand that when he says my will is that these specific people, those whom you've given me out of the world will be with me to see yourselves as the heirs as a final will and testament is read. I bet those of you who are heirs or have been heirs to someone when a final will and testament is read, I bet you're sitting on the edge of your seat. You're probably not physically in front of everybody wanting to be like that, but on the inside you're going, did I score? My rich uncle? Is he going to hook me up? But really, if it's somebody that you truly love, you really want to hear what their final will and their final desires, their final wishes are. Think about the context of this. Christ is about to go to the cross. He's been born for this hour. He's lived a sinless, perfect life for this hour. He's praying about this hour. And he's sharing what his final will is here in these final moments. And his final will is... That those you've given me, this drawn people, this dragged people, this granted people, this listening people, this woolly people, this spared people. The ones that are written in that big pre-recorded book, those people, I will that they be with me forever. Those in the book are just the list of heirs if you're in fellowship with him through the finished work of the cross, you're in there. That should leave you sort of ravaged. We'll connect to that at the end of the morning. Now, the second thing, second part of this final petition, the first part was that, or the son's will was for a specific people. The second part is the content of that will is that this specific people would be with him. I want you to consider for a moment that our God is relational. Now, you may just automatically think, well, yeah, no duh. I mean, I know that. That's not news to me. But I want it for the moment just to be news to you. Our God is relational, and I want you to know that he doesn't have to be the book of John is saturated with the imagery of an all-satisfying community of Father, Son, and Spirit. That, that's what the book teaches. And it's not just that book, but the whole full council. But John especially has this really potent picture of Father, Son, and Spirit. We call it perichoresis. The early church called it perichoresis of the dance. of Father, Son, and Spirit. Interpenetrating, interinvolved, interconnected. We hear it in things like I and you and you and me. Father, we hear it in Jesus turning to Philip and saying, Phil, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I and the Father are one. You see it in the baptism where Jesus is is, is lowered down into the water and he comes back out of the water and you hear this big voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased and the Spirit descends and remains on him like a dove. This image of Father, Son, and Spirit that's developed in our Bible so beautifully is the picture of a very content and complete and satisfied community of God. He has this amazing dance going on, and he doesn't need us to be part of the dance. The fact that his content of his will is that we would be with him has got to leave us a little bit surprised because he doesn't need us. Acts chapter 17. Turn there, please. Acts chapter 17. Paul is in Athens, Greece, that is. And he goes to this place called the Areopagus, where the greatest minds are gathered. The thinkers, I don't know, they, maybe they're rich. I don't know how they can afford to sit around and think and discuss things all day, but that's what they do. You can just envision them in their togas and stuff, you know. Sitting around like Socrates, you know, or whoever, I can't remember what statue that is. Thinking, talking. <laughs> that's not Socrates, that's David or something. I, no, who is it? Aaron's shaking his head. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> They're in the Areopagus, and they're sitting around just just thinking on things, man. And Paul shows up, and he says, man, let me tell you something. I want to talk to you about the living God. I want to talk to you about the God that you have represented with this statue that you've called the unknown God. Let me tell you about that God. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined more sovereignty. It's all over our Bibles. Having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and in the hope that they may feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live And move and have our being. What I want you to understand that Paul, the point that Paul is making in the Areopagus with the thinkers, is that our God is perfectly content without us. He's not dwelling in these temples that you guys are building, Greek thinkers. He doesn't need you, He's not served by you, He's completely content and whole. In and of himself, but he makes a way for us to find him and know him. See, the nature of our God, the shocker that this would have shocked those in the Areopagus is that our God is relational and not in some selfish, sinful sense, but in a pure sense. He's purely relational. A few months ago, I started reading Homer's Odyssey with the kids, the big kids, not Daniel. But Evan and Luke were reading Homer's Odyssey um, along with this book called The Omnibus that's part of their curriculum that sort of connects biblical truth to some of the ancient writings. Homer is believed to have lived around 800 B.C., blind dude. Um, He wrote the, The Odyssey and the Iliad. 800 BC would have placed him as a contemporary with um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, likely. He's writing about uh, some of these guys. Uh, are uh, I didn't finish the book, so I'll have to be connecting. It's hard read. Zeus, Poseidon, Calypso, and Circe are Kirky. It's pronounced two different ways. It actually is. I looked it up because I want to make sure I pronounce it right. Evan laughs out loud at me. <coughs> We're going to call her Circe for the moment, for the morning. These four gods are sort of the content of the Odyssey. What you may not realize is that these gods that Homer wrote about and other writers had a big part to play in shaping Greek and later Roman culture and religion. All these pantheon of gods that they worshipped were these that Homer and these other guys wrote about hundreds of years earlier. As I read the Odyssey, and I read this omnibus that complement to it, what I realized is that I, for my whole life, have counted them myth. I mean, they're even considered mythological, you know, gods and goddesses. And myth means that there's no substance. You, You grab it and there's nothing there. But what I realized in studying this more is realized in this New Testament context that Paul was not shadowboxing air. And he wasn't equipping the New Testament church to shadowbox something that didn't exist. He's equipping them to engage little G gods. Real beings with real stories and real Fallen character. When I'm reading about Zeus and Poseidon and Calypso and Circe, in light of what I'm learning learning over here in Omnibus, I'm going, and the word, I'm going, these are real beings. Homer may have made them up, but a demon climbed into the identity and people worshiped worshiped them for hundreds of years and may still. They're not nothing. They're something, and they have character, and they have personalities, and they have identities. Listen to these couple of passages. I'll just share with you two. Jeremiah, I brought up as a contemporary of Homer. Listen to this passage. I'll give you the reference, but I won't give you time to turn there. Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 44. And I will punish Bel, as a Babylonian god, Bel. Not Baal in this case, it's Baal, the I will punish Baal in Babylon and take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. The nations shall no longer flow to him. The wall of Babylon has fallen. How are you going to punish something that's just air? I'm going to punish something because it's not nothing. It's not the one true incomparable God but it is a little G God that wants to make himself out to be God and wants to be worshiped and has a message and has a character and has an identity. Here's another passage I'll share with you. This is a more current one. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm gonna just read it. I'm not gonna give you time. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. He says, what do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything? or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that... What pagans sacrifice, the pagans he's talking about, are those who're going to be worshiping Dionysius, Apollos, Zeus, Poseidon, all these other Greek and Roman gods. I I don't imply that they're worshiping the idol is anything or that the food is anything, but what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. I realize as I'm reading this thing, I'm for the first time going, there's something. It's not just God and then nothing. It's God and these very real powers and principalities. That language sound familiar? These very real agents out there. They want to put themselves forth at little G gods. They'd like to put themselves forth at the big G God. But here's my point. These principalities, these powers, these authorities are not purely relational. If you read the stories about these jokers, what you find is, oh, they're relational, all right. It's because they want to make little god babies with the goddesses, or they want to kill somebody. Man, these mythological gods that I've considered as nothing, that are something, have personalities. They're aloof They're capricious, they're unpredictable, they're inconsistent, they're lustful, they're selfish, they're even foolish. If they're relational at all, it's for selfish purposes. But then there's our God, the living one and true God, who is purely relational. Our God says, I want them to be with me. I don't want to kill them. I don't want to go make little goddesses with them. I want them to be with me. Because our God is faithful. Our God is gracious. Our God, in contrast with all these fallen little G gods that make themselves out to be gods, is merciful, loving, consistent, and he's just the content of his will for his people to be with him is like no other God. I can only imagine what Apollos' will would be. Our Zeus' will, our Circe's will, our Dionysius' will. It would be selfish and ugly, but our God's will is just for his people to be with him. We have a God who is relational, even friendly. Does that hit you? When I say our God is friendly, does that hit you? Can you marvel with me, with the dudes in the Areopagus, and go, wait a second, that doesn't sound like any God I know of exactly. Because our God is the one and true and living God, and he's like no other. When he says, I desire, my will is for them to be with me. Man, we've got to be shocked. Our God is friendly. Our God is inviting. We should sit and marvel with the psalmist, with him, say, what is man that you're mindful of us? What a shock. With me? Let's finish up the third part of this. Back to John 17, if you're not there already. The first part is the son wills to the specific people. Second part, would be with him. And the third part is to see his glory. Now, our versions, even the ESV, don't really do a good job of bringing out this henna clause. I've brought this up often enough. You know it's one of the things that I really want to get my hands around. A henna clause, the Greek word for purpose or in order that, is the word henna. And a good translation... Pays attention to purpose. And there is one of those sweet, special henna clauses right here in verse 24. Father, I desire, I will, that they also, those specific people whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. Notice there's no period after that. Because there's a purpose for that. That word to, translated in the original language, would be in order that, that's the henna, in order that, for the purpose of that they will see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. The son wills that a specific people will be with him to see his glory. See, people are saved specifically to be with him in order to see, in order to observe, in order to behold, in order to enjoy his pre-incarnate glory. His full unveiled splendor. We aren't saved so that we can go see granny. You understand that? I miss my granny. Granny. But if that's what heaven is for me, I won't see her. We aren't saved so we can see Fido. We aren't saved so we can fish for heavenly trout in a golden stream. We aren't saved so we will have no more tears and no more sadness and no more sickness. Are those things part of the package? Yeah. I don't know about the golden stream and trout. (laughs) But we are not saved for that purpose. We are saved so that we can enjoy him forever in his unveiled splendor. Man, here's what you got to see he's the carrot, he's the treasure. He's the carrot, not the trappings. Being with him is the good news of the last will and testament. Being with him is where we, and when the, when the last will and testament is read and we know our names is, are in here, as we're, we're in air, we're sitting there, we go, ah, to be with him forever. That's it. That's the good news of the last will and testament. Queen of Sheba had a chance to visit with Solomon When Solomon was just at the height of his wisdom and reign and power and treasure and everything else, and here's what she said. She said this to the king. She said, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Sheba marveled. After a short visit with a fallen man, marveled at his wisdom, imagine our happiness being with true wisdom forever. Psalm 16 says, "You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy in your presence." At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. That's the kind of love that will enjoy his glory. That kind of love. That's the kind of love that will even experience his glory. Loving him so you won't go to hell isn't love for him. It's love, but it's love for you. Do you understand that? Loving him so you don't go to the bad place is not love for him. It's love for you. And loving him so you have a better life here isn't love for him, it's love for you. Man, true love for him says, You're the carrot, Jesus. If you're not going to be in heaven, I don't want to go. I will give up everything to be with you. That's the kind of love that will enjoy the carrot, the treasure of being with Christ forever. Let me tell you something, y'all. This has got to connect with who you are. If this doesn't connect with your marriage, your week, your parenting, just your daily sense of well-being, your sense of purpose, meaning, identity, if it doesn't intersect with your problems... Then you've missed it. Your problems are treats. They are privileges. They are escorts. They are joys given to you to take you to the place where you see these things that we've engaged today as your grip. Man, they're my everything because I got nothing else. Everything else is just mirage. My health, my family, my life, my job, all these other things, they matter to me, of course. But compared to you, I'll trade them all because they're paper thin. But you, I can grip, and I can grip this notion that before you ever knew me, before I ever did anything good or bad, you chose the likes of me? That'll leave me shocked just by itself because I know me. And then secondly, you didn't just choose me to not go to hell, but you choose me to be with you? Now that's a shocker. You're holy. I'm not. You're righteous and good and consistent and true. I'm none of those things. That's got to invade your problems to where those problems become small. Because this is so immense. This is so marvelous that this, even the biggest thing, cancer, I'm going to die, becomes like this. My marriage is on the rocks. Big issue. But compared to that, it's like this. Because this is too grand. It's too grand for it not to shed new light on everything else. The specificity of the cross. His will that I would be with him. And an eternity to enjoy and observe and glory in and experience his own glory. If that doesn't invade your day and your week and your problems and your Tuesday and your marriage and your parenting and your identity and your job, then it's not worship. It's just a notion. It's just like a a fact. (laughs) We're not fact collectors, though. We're worshipers. When you connect it to all those things and it invades all those things, that's worship. Now you're a worshiper. And I urge you, shepherds, small group shepherds, family shepherds, escort this into your week. Marvel over this. Wonder about this out loud in the presence of your children. Talk about it with your friends over lunch. This is the scandal of the gospel. It's the good news. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. Let's pray. Lord, what, a, what an awesome, awesome, awesome privilege to listen in on this prayer. Lord, sweeter than the opportunity to listen in is just considering the content. Just to consider that four out of the five requests that your son made before he went to your cross, that you ordained for him, that you prepared beforehand for him, are regarding us, and Lord, this will that's revealed, this final will and testament for us to be with you, Father, Son and spirit, forever, is just a shocker. I pray that it will put all things in perspective, that it will make all our problems slight and slim, even the worst problems in contrast to this crazy good news. Lord, we are so thankful for the finished work of Christ. We continue this morning in song, in offering, in supper, and in fellowship. I pray that you'll find us just giving everything that we have, not only in the next few minutes, but in this coming week, enjoying the marvel
1: of your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you guys are wishing that we could just keep singing, I think that's the Lord's intention. That what's coming is sort of beckoning now. When He tells us to pray uh, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, I think we experience that in part uh, in the realities that we know of the things to come and the way they affect our life here. This supper that we're about to take, we do it every week, and it's extremely personal. The Lord made it so that it's extremely personal. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29 say Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Listen to this in light of this morning's sermon. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes there are some very real things at play when we partake of the Lord's Supper. When we gather at this table to partake of this supper, it points to the past atoning death of Jesus. It points to a present, very personal relationship with Christ. And in particular response to our time in John 17, it points to the future coming of Christ. This supper reminds us that he's coming back. The last time that Jesus took this supper was before the cross. The next time that Jesus takes this supper will be with us. Newly, in the Father's kingdom, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will one day share this feast with our Lord. It's so much more than symbolic. Symbolic. It's preparing us. And we'll share it with our Lord as a fulfillment of his prayer that we would be with him where he is, looking and gazing upon him in the fullness of his pre-creation glory. Do you understand that his presence will be very real? Do you understand that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns when we take this supper? Do you weekly partake of this supper in anticipation of a very real future feast. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. The pieces of bread actually seem a little bigger today. seems appropriate. Um, In remembrance of our Lord, we humble ourselves before him, and we take of this in eager anticipation of a very real future feast. Take and eat. He showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, what a sweet, sweet privilege it is to have fellowship with you. God, I'm thankful that you're relational. I'm thankful that you allow us to come before you and let our requests be made known, that we can be in your presence and have joy and not tremble in fear. We certainly tremble. Because we know there's none like you. But the things that you reveal to us in the word continually fuel eternal joy in these temporal realities that we exist in. Lord, I pray that the message would fuel everything that happens between Sundays. I'm thankful for Ben's time in the Word this week as he's climbed the mountain. I'm thankful that he came back down the mountain to share with us what he heard from you. I'm thankful for the supper that points to a future supper that we will have together with our Lord. I'm thankful for praises that we sing in corporate worship that point to future praises that will be sung eternally to you as you reveal yourself to us in the splendor, the full splendor of your glory. And words are not abundant enough to express your greatness. Lord, we love you. It's been a sweet morning in your presence. We humbly pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things, one of the passages I didn't share with you
0: this morning that I think it would be appropriate for a family that I'm about to present, actually two families that are going to be presented one of these passages that I read in John chapter 6, John chapter 6 is a tough chapter. It was a tough chapter for me. Um, I remember whenever I engaged it for the first time, it just sort of messed a lot of things up that I had believed for a long time, and I had to sort of reapproach uh, let, letting the Bible say what truth is, not what I thought it ought to be. And it, one passage really stuck out to me as interesting when I engage this chapter is in verse 66 it's after he said you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to follow me and they're like man that's a hard saying who can listen to it and then he, he goes on to say that this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the father the next verse says after this many of his disciples turned back and no, no longer walked with him then they're no longer his disciples You understand what that means? This teaching is too hard for me to consider the notion of a specific people foreknown and died for, drawn, granted. It's just unthinkable for me, and I don't like the sound of it. And this excessive eating flesh and drinking blood thing is just too much for me, and I think I'll pass. I think I'll find something tamer. And I think I'll find something that seems to make a little bit more of me than you've made of me in that whole plan. Now, whether that's articulated or not, that's just kind of giving words to, unfortunately, you know, I made, hopefully I made the point that I can't speak for every church in this community because I don't know the message that's coming out of every pulpit. In fact, I don't know the message of many pulpits, but I know what I hear from people they come and visit or they come and join. They're like, man, I haven't heard this. I've never heard this. I know I have a context of growing up in the church ever since I could breathe. And churches that I love and people that I trust love the Lord. I need to say that. I don't know if I clearly communicated that. I know I made the point. I'm not even sure if it is worship. I trust that the churches that I grew up in, those people love the Lord. My dad and mom are still in one of those churches that I grew up in. And I know they love the Lord. But the message, I would say, a church that is absent of this Christ-centric message, is bubblegum and shoestrings, man. It's held on by a sliver-thin a thread. I don't know how it's even held together. And those of you who have been in those contexts, you know that things can fly apart at a moment's notice. Why do you think that is? Because in a context where man is made much of, men are going to devour each other. And I'm talking about people I love, and I'm talking about people that love the Lord, too. But in a context where Christ is at the center of it, and God's work is at the center of it, and His sovereign plan over the ages, foreknown, foreplanned, foreworked, ordained, is at the center of it, then everybody's just so shocked by the whole thing. What do you got to fight about? I can't be mad at you. I'm too scandalized and ravaged by the gospel, man. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? It just puts everybody in a different place. The disposition of the people of God are different. It makes for a different church. So given that, we're not about growing the biggest church in this community. That's God's business. We're about being true. Preaching and walking in truth. Truth. And it's his business how large we get. Now, what that says for me, too, diagnostically, as I look at a community. I look at this community, and now I get why he wanted us to start a church in a town that's supposedly the highest saturated church environment in, our, in maybe in the world, with 98 Christian churches serving 25,000 people. Now I get it. If this message is largely absent from this community, although there are lots of church buildings, and I trust lots of people that love the Lord, There's no healthy church. And I'm not not a blanket statement saying there's no healthy churches in community. But as a whole, the church is sort of malnourished in Greenville if this message is absent. Wouldn't you say? It's just sort of skinny and homely. So now I get it. Okay, God, I got why you called us to Greenville. Now I get it. We haven't arrived. We're not all that. If you stick around, you'll find out. It's not like we got everything figured out. We're just moving verse by verse through our Bible and eating every bite. It's making for a different people. And it's helping us see, well, that's why we're in Greenville. So if mission work is taking the church where the church isn't or where the church is weak, then missions needed to happen in Greenville. Christy and I were called here as missions, the North American Mission Board. I don't know if you know that. Seven years ago. Missionaries. And Greenville. So if that's the case, why wouldn't we think Sulphur Springs or other places, Commerce, where we planted a church a few years ago? You see why that makes sense? Because if that environment, even though it may have many buildings, is void of this Christ-centric message, then it's skinny and homely. It's not saying we're all that and everybody's messed up. It's just a byproduct of if you're not moving verse by verse through the Word, you're going to be skinny and homely if you're topically engaging how to manage your money and your marriage and your parenting all those things will give you something you're going to have something to eat you're not going to be dead you're just going to be skinny and homely so missions work is taking the church where the church isn't or where it's weak so the reason I say all that is because we have two families that are joining this morning they live in Rowlett Rowlett which way Yeah, Rowlett they carpool in and I want you to know why they're here they're here because they want to take the church where the church isn't they want to start and plant a church in Rowlett and they're here being equipped to be sent to be part of that work a potential work out there isn't that awesome I mean think about that that's pretty cool people are coming here to be equipped to go do and take that Christ-centric message to places where it's maybe skinny or homely. Come on up, kind Emily. That's a major, nobody's ever had an introduction like that. (laughs) Ever, ever. Usually just kind of here's Bill and Sally and no, it's never that way for Um, uh, Brad's going to introduce y'all, but y'all stay up here too. No, y'all stay up here too. Come on. Kai and Emily are here and here, and um, that this is the carpool gang right here. So, <laughs> Kai and Emily work with Brad at IGO, and uh, I'll go ahead and turn it over to you at this point, Brad.
2: Okay. This is Chris and Jessica. Um, one of the things, more specifically, what Ben is saying is Kai is coming here um, to be assessed and trained um, uh, by us. And when I say, I, I said this when Renee Finner joined, that we are taking on, uh, God is giving us stewardship over a lot of things that people are coming our direction to do what Ben was talking about. And when I say we, I mean we, not we elders, but we have been given stewardship over families who are now coming here to be sent out, which that's different. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not used to it. I don't, maybe y'all are, but I'm not used to that. And it's um, It's exciting. Kai is coming to be assessed to plant the church as pastor. Kai has been faithful with many things. One of the really neat things is that Chris and Jessica, I hope you'll take um, all the opportunity to get to know them. Uh, they work in the Dallas area, and they have been in small group with Kai and Emily and have followed Kai's lead as a, uh, functionally as a pastor. And so they're coming and submitting to us, not just Kai, but us, so that they would be a part of this plant too. So, really neat how God's calling two families here to be among us, submitting to us, to walk with us. And that's the plan, by the way. We don't have a scheme. There's no church planting scheme that we have. We're going to say, be in a small group, walk with us. We'll assess Kai, and then we'll see what God does. That's it. And so, walk with these people, is what I would say. All right? Uh, Chris and Jessica Lewis. Make sure I get their names. Kai and Emily Martin. Y'all welcome them. After I pray. I'll dismiss us, and then you come and meet them and get to know them over the next few weeks and months. Father, thank you for this worship time today. Thank you for the reality, and thank you for the absence of a mirage this morning, for the absence of just stuff, but for the presence of truth and for the faithfulness in this people that we're seeing. Thank you for Kai and Emily. Thank you for Chris and Jessica. Thank you for bringing them here. God, we feel uh, the responsibility to walk with them to invest in them, to be known by them, and to know them. And I pray that we would take that responsibility very seriously as you have seem to be making this sort of into an Antioch place and um, help us to be responsible with those others that come behind them. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Y'all are dismissed.
1: Come and welcome these new families.